The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I should be writing the new wave. I One of these freaking days I'm going to figure out the, the numbers of these podcasts. I swear. After you know, I'll learn after 18 years. I'll learn. It's season 19, episode 20-something. I don't know. Well, I should be riding. I should be working on my Hi there, welcome to I Should Be Writing. This is the podcast for wannabe fiction writers, and I'm your host, Mer Lafferty. I am back to regular recording on the device, not in front of a live audience. I'm actually doing focus mates, so I suppose I have one live audience person, but she can't hear me. So yeah, I am back from the Nebula conference, and it was an excellent, excellent conference. Um, Got to reconnect with a lot of people I hadn't seen since before the pandemic and met some new friends. And I got to give out a nebula, which was a major, major high point. Just to, to, to give you some backstory, if you haven't heard, I can't imagine anybody hasn't heard. But hey, maybe if you're listening to this a couple of years in the future, the the novelty of the story will have died down. The Trigun fan community as a whole, went and ordered, uh, went, went and bought This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal Emotar and Max Gladstone en masse. Like, shoot, it shot up the bestseller charts. I just heard today that one library ordered 20 more copies to bring the wait list, to, to bring the uh, wait time down. They did this because one person in the community named Bigolus Dicolus recommended it highly, you know, like, oh my God, stop what you're doing and go read this book. And they did. And it's just like, I, 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 I it's hard to explain how you feel. Cause it's like, wow, that's amazing. And partly envy of why can it happen with my book? And then some people are like running back over to be like, Hey, Bigolus Tickless, why don't you read my book? And then do it like, like it can happen again. So when I gave out the award for short stories, I was trying to encourage authors to support each other because right now, um, if you didn't have enough to be angry or upset about in the world, uh, if you hadn't heard, Amazon got rid of its subscription model, which has hurt many, many magazines who were relying on Amazon subscriptions as a major way to get their magazine out. Also, Twitter became a place for marginalized authors to find an audience and support each other. And with the latest toddler with a blowtorch takeover of Twitter that, that has just gotten weirder and weirder every single day, that's hurting. So I was trying to say we should support each other because it's it's been proven that an author saying, here, buy my book, that's not, that's, that's just marketing. 
That's not useful. An author saying, hey, I just read this book. It's amazing. Go read it. That is an endorsement and that does work. So if you want to help people, you want to, if you want to help other authors, promote them. If you want to help yourself, then get an author to promote you. But be okay with it if they don't say yes. So this is fun. I just realized I went on a huge tangent after this about people who do favors for you and then ask that you don't ask them to do and then get mad when you don't acknowledge them. And I went on such a large tangent, I didn't even finish the Bigalisticalis story. And I'm sorry. So this is why this transition is a little awkward, because I just thought it was fun to laugh at myself. So the Bigalisticalis story is that my message was we need to support each other. We need to promote each other, especially since things are getting more striated on the social media areas. And then I said, you know, if we support each other, then we can all be each other's bigalisticalists. And uh, I had asked around a little bit beforehand and made sure that people thought enough people would get the joke to where it wouldn't just be a very weird and offensive out of the blue statement. So that was fun. I got to do that. Got a bunch of new people looking at my TikTok because of this, that part of the speech ended up on TikTok. And then they found out that I am not always dressed up like I am at the Nebulas and uh, don't talk about anything close to what I did in the award speech. But it was fun. Now back to your regularly recorded podcast. I also got to meet and hang out with Travis Baldry at the Nebulas. And he is the one who, the guy who wrote the uh, very, very runaway indie hit that got picked up by Tor, Legends and Lattes, which is a story that's pretty much a hug. It's about an orc who decides to end her adventuring days and open a coffee shop. And I'm not exaggerating or downplaying. That's exactly what the book is about. And it hit really big. I think uh, Sean and McGuire was his big listicalist because she really promoted him, which got the indie book a lot of attention. And then his then Tor picked him up. Oh, and he was nominated for the Nebula. And I had a very careful conversation with him because I really didn't want to insult him. But I was just like, you know, I thought that the Nebulas were big, important literary awards. And that was clear that it wasn't when I got nominated <laughs> because I don't, I don't, I don't cover like major social issues in fiction form. I don't address political corruption or anything. I mean, the book that won the Nebula was Babel, an arcane or the necessity of violence, an arcane history of the Oxford translators revolutions. And it, 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 it discusses British imperialism and capitalism and complex of academia in helping imperialism and capitalism. And uh, Kwong was a translator and Oxford graduate. So it's like, it's, this is a big deal. This is a big book that addresses a lot of things in a science fiction fantasy atmosphere, which is what I always thought the nebulas were. And then, you know, they nominated the clone murder book and then they nominated the orc barista book. So, and we, we talked a lot about the the importance of books that you just, that could take you away from things. The importance of humor to make you smile when things are going poorly. And that was really good. I di I'm just trying to say I didn't want to, I wasn't trying to insult his book. Because remember, I was lumping mine in there too. 
But, you know, I'd say the same if Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy had been nominated for Nebula. Was it nominated for Nebula? I don't know. Yeah, okay. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy did not win any awards, according to Wikipedia. If I'm wrong, let me know. What I've been up to has been dealing with the Nebulas and recovery from the Nebulas. I met my agent for the first time, and I've been trying to... He he's he's a he says a lot. He's he's a very he talks a lot. I probably should have taken notes, but we talked through a couple of things: how my career is going, what sh- what should be next, how I should approach things, and it's given me a lot to think about. And so, with that plus being really tired, I haven't really gotten much done this week yet. It is Thursday, May eighteenth. A little bit of dog news since I have been talking about my dog in the live stream. So you, if you listened to the previous episode, you will have heard about the dog. She had a third knee surgery. Well, she had one knee surgery on each knee, so that's two. And then the first knee needed another surgery because they think she, they thought she developed an infection, which is the leg never fully healed. It was, it's like, even after she blew out the right knee, she was still favoring the left more. And it was just bad. We felt so bad for her, and finally, and one time it actually swelled, and so they thought there was a an infection. So they decided to operate to remove some of the hardware they put in to help the bone heal. The bone's already healed, so, and they did find an infection. So they cleaned that out, and she's being treated for it. And she's already—it's only been a week and a couple of days—but she's already just cheerful and running around. She shouldn't be. I'm trying to stop her from the running around, but but you could tell she feels so much better. And I'm both, like, happy and kind of sad that she's been so uncomfortable for so many months. But it really does feel like we're on the tail end of this nightmare that started last March. It's been a bad year. Get health insurance for your pets, guys. I cannot stress this enough. I'm telling you. Now we're to the main part of the show where I'm going to talk a little bit about agent hunts. Because... If you keep up with publishing news, you will have known that and there's a there's a bit of a controversy going on in the agenting world right now. Um, Matt and I have agreed to talk about it next Monday on Ditch Diggers, but we'll be talking more about the business side of it. I want to approach it here from the new writer side of it, which is, oh God, what if that happened to me? So what happened was this agency called New Leaf Agency... Um, fired one of their agents and then cut most of their clients loose. And then they lied and said it was an amicable parting, but the authors point out that, like, at 3 p.m. on Friday, this was Friday the 12th, 3 p.m. on Friday, the agent sent out a, hey, everybody, here's my summer plans, letting you know when I'll be free, when I won't be free, and how excited I am in working for you. It's going to be a great year. And then seven hours later is the form letter from the agency itself saying, hey, we've parted amicably with this agent and we're keeping a select few on at our agencies, but the rest of you are free. I'm not sure if that's, I know they didn't say you're free, but, and the thing was, this isn't the first time they've done that, but the last time I know they did that is when it happened to me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't, why none of us responded as violently as these folks did and rightly so. But I think it was probably the pandemic. My previous agent had been let go and told, we were told that a great deal of us, uh, several of us were not going to be taken on by anybody else in the agency. 
which, you know, makes you feel good. You think you're over getting rejected once you get a couple of books done? No. First, you're not. They they definitely won't take a book. They don't want, they don't think they can sell. And two, well, you know, there are other ways to reject you. But when it happened to us, um, I'm thinking of Maurice Broadus, Kellen Spera, and me and all the other clients. Um, it was well into the first year of the pandemic. And so we're just all kind of like, you know, when you're being punched repeatedly and then say a little dog bites your ankle, the, the bite isn't going to be as obvious because you're being punched repeatedly in the face. And we were being punched repeatedly in the face. So, um, but no, also none of the authors went public with it. I think we were trying to protect the, the agent, you know, this was kind of her story, but yeah. So what this tells you is this agency has a, they have a track record of doing this. Now, how could they have done it better if they really wanted to let the agent go? You know, there are, there are ways Communication, I think, is the key, not lying that it was an amicable thing. You know, you don't most companies won't talk in public about why somebody was fired or let go or layoffs or how people were chosen during layoffs. But, you know, just outright lying and saying it was amicable, that wasn't a good look. They also said they had cut loose the inactive authors on her list and one author spoke up and said, I was let go and I have five contracts. I have five books coming up next year. It's just not, it's not a good look. And, you know, I I was talking about it in the discord and realized, I don't think what they did was illegal or, you know, technically against any code that agents have, but it's not a good look. And it, will hurt you professionally. It should hurt you professionally. Now that there's a track record, you know, new authors are going to look at New Leaf and go, well, when are you going to fire my agent? When are you going to set me free? Because, you know, when you get an agent, you get like part of you relaxes because it's a major step in your traditional publishing author career. And it tells you that, you know, you can relax not only on the agent hunt, but you can relax a little bit on the all the other legwork, because this is what you've hired this person to do. But if you can't count on them being employed next week, what, what, what are you going to do? How, how, how can you query them in good faith? So this week we're talking to Hannah Porter about her new book, but next week I'll be running, uh, an interview I'd made, I did at the Nebulas with Arlie Sorg, who's a new agent. So I'm excited to get his words out to you. But really, remember when you're looking for an agent and you're you're interviewing with them, you need to ask them questions. It's like, and, and it's hard to accept that because just like when you're doing a job hunt and you, you need a job, you sh- but you should be asking them questions about the company because you're, you're going to be giving like a, a third of your life to them. You should probably know like what their overtime policy is, etc., I'm just picking something out of the air. But with an agent, you want to know how they how they communicate. And, you know, I haven't thought about this until now, but what happens if you're fired? What happens if you quit? Will I go with you? I think too many 
see the path towards publication and think that it is it is nasty and stormy and muddy out here. But once you go into the building where the traditional publishing party is going on, everything is better. But there are still nasty things. There are still tough professional things that you have to handle. And, you know, this is my positive podcast. I'm, I, I want to support you, but I'm not going to lie to you. And, you know, it would be lying to say that once you get an agent, everything's great. Once you get an agent, everything can be easier. That's the goal. But you need to make sure you sign with the right one and you need to make sure you're asking the right questions when you interview them. Other questions could be when I when I want to work in different media, how are you going to support me? Well, I need to get another, say, YA agent or will you ha- will you be able to do that? What if I want to do film? What if I want to do um, a stage play? That sounds ridiculous. And then you realize how many musicals have been based off of books. Wicked is the one that really springs to mind. Hamilton technically also does. But now we're going to get to my interview with Hannah Porter. She's a novelist and playwright, and her newest book is The Thick and the Lean, which has just the most gorgeous cover in the world. I'm delighted to welcome to I Should Be Writing author and playwright Hannah Porter. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm delighted to talk to you. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. Just to let you guys know, this is slightly different. This is going to have a different format than previous interviews because we're not streaming live. So um, if you would like to watch the video of this live call, uh, rather not live, if you'd like to watch the video of this interview, you can support at patreon.com slash mighty Otherwise, you'll hear it for free. So, Hannah, um, I am... I, I've it. It's an interesting thing for me this year because I keep I keep talking to people who seem to be moving in through mediums media in their lives. So you started with playwright, and now you're this is your the second novel. Um, you just came out in April, I believe. Yes, list last month yeah, in April. Yeah. And uh, but you started as a playwright, and I just find yeah. it interesting that I'm. I seem to, it's, it's some sort of kismet that I just keep running into people who are doing these big shifts and, um, your yeah. novel, the thick and the lean is your second. So have you tell, tell us a little bit about your background and, um, why you turn to novels? Well, one, I just want to say that if you subscribe to Mer's Patreon, you can watch me drink tea <laughs> and it's very attractive. Um, the way I drink tea. Uh, yes. Are you having, now you're having water, but that's yeah, right. You that's right. We'll just know what kind of drinks we have. Um, you know, when I was a, uh, t- teenager, I thought I was writing po- poems, but I said, everyone has to have a different part of the poem and they have to stand up and read <laughs> their part. So, so a play, <laughs> I didn't know that I was writing plays. Um, I'm a person who stutters too, which was kind of a defining mark of my childhood. And uh, I think I knew that I was going to do something with the written word. Um, 
So I found my way to plays through very kind of windy paths. I was an art student for a time, and I started to sculpt these weird little puppets that worked their way into plays. But it just seemed like theater was this amazing container for anything that I wanted to explore, be it agriculture or, you know, Russian li literature or politics. I could re read and think about all kinds of things and then they could work their way into a play. Um, and I found novels to be that kind of even more. Um, I really love how big and slow the genre <laughs> is. I love that it's not strange that I like work on something for a long time. I worked on my first novel. I started it in 2013 and it came out in 2020. And then I started the second one um, in 2016. So, and all of that time I was writing plays and sometimes producing plays too. So, and having other jobs and having, you know, like life stuff. So I've always been someone who found, um, that a creative life, that processing things through the things that I write I, I find that just incredibly help, helpful um, and like nourishing for my soul. Mm -hmm. So I'm someone who tends to juggle a lot of projects. So I, I still consider myself a playwright and I'm actually working on a play right now. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so, wow, you, you gave yourself a lot of years to write the thick and the lean. I'm, was this a, a, a book that was contracted or just something you, uh, nope. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Was it, was it, uh, is that the, the I sound like I'm insulting you. I'm so sorry. No, <laughs> I feel like no, I'm no, 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 just, please. uh, even though publishing does move slowly, that does seem like a seven year from starting writing to publication. Um, since on the show, we talk a lot about mental issues we have that you're getting in our own way. Are you uh, like a methodical writer? Did you uh, encounter any problems or uh, did it just take that long? Because it took that long, Mer, and thank you very much for being rude about that. No, I mean, I basically... I, I have had kind of a um, side winding path to publishing. So I tried to publish my debut, this seep, um, and I wasn't getting any takers and I didn't have representation. Um, and I didn't do a lot of the traditional publishing stuff. Like I didn't get an MFA program at one of those spots that then you have like a lot of connections. Ends. That just wasn't my path. Um, so I think it was longer for me because of that, but also I have a lot of gratitude for that time. Um, so basically I started my debut in 2013. I was really learning how to write prose. I rewrote that a lot. 
Um, and then I started to take that out around 2015, 2016, and I just wasn't getting anything. So I started to write in 2017, the thick and the lane and that like a, a draft of that was what got me representation. And I was lucky to find a really good, good, good agent who really saw me and she read all of my stuff. And she was like, we got to start them with this seat, this seat, this seat. That's your debut. So we like took that out of the oh, drawer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then we passed many drafts of the thick and the lean between one another. So, and I, I did have an opportunity to sell it and probably have it on shelves back in 2020. And I just didn't feel like it was the right time. Um, something about that publishing deal just didn't feel exactly like the right thing. And I'm really glad that I listened to my gut. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking time. And I think that, you know, I love, I love that you have such a process minded podcast. I think that's super cool. Um, and I think people shouldn't be scared of being slow. And I think that you should know that I think our work is like alive and that it wants to be brought into the world in a particular way. And we don't have to like push it. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be steadfast and dedicated to our products. I feel like we have to be good stewards to our products. Um, but I like to think of them as, you know, almost like little people, like, where do you want to be? And do you need more time before you get scrutinized? Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know? um, I do want to talk about the book itself, of course. Um, yeah, please. but I, I, I really want to praise the hell out of you for I mean, <laughs> a lot of people. The thing I try to w warn people against is the minute you get an agent, an offer of representation, people will take it without actually wondering if the agent's right for you. I've oh, done it. No, I, I do have that. done it. And so I know the desire and the feeling like the ship is sailing. You gotta, you gotta jump mm -hmm. on. And you know, it's, it's always a bad decision. I mean, like the worst, the worst thing is it's going to slow down your career, which it did for me, but you know, the, and um, no, that's not the worst thing. That's the best thing that can happen with the wrong agent is they just, yeah. it just slows down your career, but you actually said no to a deal. And that, yeah, that's amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your thought process there? It's or rather what advice would you give to somebody if they're feeling a gut feeling of I don't know if this is right for me and they don't know whether that's just beginner jitters or maybe there's something to this. Do you know what I mean? Well, hmm. I would try to cultivate as much of like a, like a path between your gut and your brain as you can. So, um, I, I've had a long time of, of trying to practice 
listening to my own instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of things that you can do, but I think really paying att- att- attention to like how certain people and how certain things make you feel um, and then trying to have a level of extra, of interest back about it. Uh, it's hard to know. Basically, I had a day with my own partner where um, we like went out to dinner to celebrate it. We like went out to celebrate the, the deal. And I felt bad mm-hmm. the entire time. And I was like, this is something that's worth me paying atten- attention to. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's not that I, and then I, I just think that, um, sometimes slowing down and saying like, can I take a pause is the best approach. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, ways that you don't even have to say no you could say you know I think that the book is not quite done I'd like to take another mm, pass Mm -hmm. or I'd like to get some other thoughts um but anything that makes us feel like we're you know that phrase that you said of like was it like that, that, like the ship is setting sail? Like you are, you are the ship. Like (laughs) the ship cannot, cannot set sail. Like you made this amazing thing. All of the other stuff are really important, but they have to be in the right alignment to you, to the ship, the ship, the ship, the ship, to like have that be a smooth journey. Mm-hmm. You're not like um, an interchangeable dock hand. <laughs> You're the motherfucking ship. Right? Excellent. True, true. You are the ship. That <laughs> I really like that because that's how I always felt like there was something moving that was going away from me. And if I did not sign with this agent who promised me he knew what he was doing and could represent my stuff right away, then I would never, ever get another chance. And that's, I try to tell people, don't do that. Don't please, please learn from my, uh, the mistakes I've, I've experienced. Um, so tell us about, uh, the thick and the lean, which by the way, has one of the more gorgeous covers I've seen so far this year. Um, you'll see it on the show notes if you check out merverse.com, but, uh, tell us about it. I'm just holding it up too for any of the excellent at home people. Um, the thick and the lean is a big speculative novel. It uh, posits a very fun, like classic sci-fi taboo switch of there's a culture like a dominant culture. You find out later that there's other cultures that are being suppressed that don't do it quite in the same way, but the dominant culture of the novel, um, sex there is very public. 
uh, and very kind of lackadaisical. And food pleasure is highly taboo. So it was a starting way for me to think about like the tangled swirl of diet culture and purity culture Mm -hmm. and how they share language sometimes and how they share feelings for me sometimes around like shame and guilt and body autonomy. Um, But then as I like really built the world out, which I think is a benefit to slow, like you can layer things Mm -hmm. slowly through time. Um, it became a space where I could talk about like corporate greed, big agriculture, uh, land rights, climate change, all of these things that I care so much about. So, um, it was really neat to kind of have the kernel of the story feel very personal have to do so much with like personal shame and guilt and body autonomy, but then like zoom, zoom out, uh, to see how maybe there are these larger structures of power in place that have manufactured some of those personal feelings. So that's like thematically what it's, what it's about, but it follows three braided, plots of three women who all kind of buck societal expectations in one way or another. One thing that, that fascinates me, I love, I, I don't know why, but I love speculative fiction written about food because food's mm. such a huge part of our lives. Yeah. And not a lot of people delve into it. And I admit yeah. I'm, guilty of that as well um and you know what you're doing here is you're you're acknowledging the how much um integral it is to our lives and our rituals and uh you know it's attached to everything i recently had a relative on a feeding tube for several months and like just thinking well, I can't bring food over. We can't go out to coffee. It's like suddenly everything I wanted to do was involved with food. And I did not, hadn't really thought about how much it permeates our life. And you've put it, you've put the pleasure of food up there with like sex taboo. Right. So that's, uh, can you tell me what, what led you to that, that plot point or, um, yeah, sorry. No, that's so, so, so astute. Um, they felt very braided together for me, especially as a teenager, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up in like nineties diet and culture oh, yeah. and my changing body and all the attention that I was getting from my body. Um, and this feeling that I should be sexy, but not sexual. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't have an, an, an appetite, be it like a food appetite or really a sex appetite, but I shouldn't diet and I shouldn't be frigid. Like there's, you know, yeah. it like just felt like the parameters of, 
being a successful girl in the culture were very narrow. Um, And I kind of volleyed between like, do I want to burn this all down? And like, I shaved my head when I was 15, which in like suburban Maryland in 1999 was just, I mean, shocking. Um, but then like later in my teens, I really decided to like play with it. And I got on Weight Watchers, me and like every other middle-aged woman in my town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember like I lightened and straightened my my hair. And I just became like like a thin, a thin beauty in our in our little suburb, suburban town. And it felt very much like drag, but it was something that I got, I got rewarded from it a lot. And yet every day was just kind of this dance of, you know, I was starving and filled with self-loathing. And yet I felt like I was winning, like I was winning over my peers, Mm -hmm. um, it was very cutthroat and it, it really took up all of my mental energy. Wow. Like there was no way for me to be, uh, I mean, much less like any, an interesting person, but like a creative force in any way on the planet. I was just, um, consumed and sapped by wanting to be this like thin specimen. So, I mean, it got hairy for a time. Uh, the book is very much like drawn from my own life. Of At one point I had a choice where I was like, you could do this for a while, but at some point this is going to become a choice between like, are you going to die or are you going to be alive? And you might be like dying in a way that's very polite and slow that doesn't like, you know, give you that much in terms of worry or care from others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the book started as a way for me to talk about that. Um, And then the more that I wrote in to really like truly following the taboo, taboo switch, well, like, what would it be like? How like would this culture have gotten to this place? Um, That helped me think kind of more deeply and more broadly about the larger like socio-political ramifications. and I found that very fun to like create that scaf- scaffolding and then how characters walk around and that. So is that how you usually uh, structure your work? Do you do a like larger setting of both like physical space and what's happening mentally and socially at the time? Or do you commonly start smaller with a character and then go broad? 
for most of them. I mean, you just told me how you did the thick and the lean, but yeah. uh, I was curious if you just dabbled in a lot or that was your MO. I think I have to start with the character and then go broader. And then I have to go back between at some point. So with this, 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 I started with nothing. I was really like learning how to write prose and I have like three secret novels, three secret seep like compost <laughs> novels. And I don't recommend that people do it like that. I just, you know, I, I was writing on the subway and in my apartment and like between things, I didn't know a lot. So I was just trying out a bunch of stuff. Um, but with the thick and the lean, I wrote probably, I would say like the first 20 pages of Beatrice's journey. And then I was like, Hmm, I think that this is not a short story. I think this might be like either a novella or a novel. And then I really like to go into note cards. I'm big on note cards. So in the past, when I was really learning to write with this, this heap, I would write scenes of just back story. Um, and I think like a little bit more of an efficient thing to, to do is when you get like a juicy world building thought, or maybe just like a couple lines of dialogue or a neat kind of scenic or character descri description, you just put it on a note card. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when you have between 75 to hundred note cards, then maybe you can start to think about, I know enough about this place. Wow. To really right. Yeah. Would you call yourself? I like the feeling of like, there's a lot happening that we don't even get to. Mm -hmm. but... Yeah. Um, so do you, would you call yourself an outliner or is that how you do the, by the seat of your pants method with the note cards and that? I think that every project wants to be written in a particular way. Um, I am finishing like another novel now. I wouldn't say that I outlined it. Like I'm never going to plot out every single event, but I definitely wrote like a treatment for that. And it changed. I think it's really important for me to allow the work to change in the process. I don't like feeling like something is totally shining and complete before I like even start it. Mm -hmm. Um, that makes me feel like the writing process is just kind of like a coloring in the, you know, in the dotted lines. I like want there to be a lot of discovery, mm -hmm. but as I've like written maybe more than one book now, I am leaning a little bit more than I did to planning. Okay. 
How do you structure your days when you're doing um, playwriting and uh, writing no- prose novels? Mm. Well, when I feel really overwhelmed by like so many d- d- different projects, <laughs> I made something called Hana's Activity Cards. And I write all of my possible projects on cards and then I shuffle them. Oh, wow. And then I, yeah. Um, and sometimes I like slip in some chores. <laughs> like for unload fun? the dishwasher. <laughs> but it's just a really nice way to like completely short circuit my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Would you, yeah. but do you ever work on more than one project during a day? Like, do you switch yeah. doing them? Okay. I mean, there's been some times where I'm like going through 20 act, activity cards. Wow. You know? Um, but then there's other times like when I, when I need to re 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 rewrite or like when I've gotten notes, that kind of task is so clear for me. Like part of me is just kind of like a good little workhorse. And I'm, I like know what I need to do. Right. And I can sit down and I have my tea and I might like move to three different spots in my house but I will definitely like write the entire day when I have maybe not a concrete deadline to work towards. And I'm someone who I don't lack for creative projects. Sometimes I get a little paralyzed by like, I have too, 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 too many thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really like those cards. I highly suggest that everyone make themselves an activity cards stack. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, we are getting towards the end of our time. Um, I do want to ask, especially as you are a, uh, you know, newer novelist, but long career writer, what advice would you give to, uh, new authors who are still working on building their careers and maybe getting discouraged from time to time? I would say that your inner world and your imagination matters very, very, very much. And the sheer, sheer act of you making something changes you and it changes the people around around you whether or not you can tell right away mm-hmm. but creative work is really the like the the work of your soul and you don't need anyone's permission yeah. to do that yeah, that's great. I've been asking that question a lot, and I always get excited when I get a new answer. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, so is there anything you wanted to mention um, before we get to your website and socials and all that? Anything else you wanted to talk about or bring up? Hmm. Well, 
No. Okay. I think that's it. I'm so grateful and pleased. I love to talk on process. Excellent. That's, that's a lot of what we do here and, and process and, um, don't give up a lot of that too. I but. thought of something, um, just very, very brief. I would love to, to plug the, the Octavia project. Yes. I was reading about that. Please tell is, us about the Octavia yeah. project. So the Octavia project is a free summer Institute for teens, um, in Brooklyn. And it's something that I helped start. And we use sci-fi and fantasy as kind of a lens to think critically and expansively about our current times. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a, a wonderful, wonderful group of people. So, um, you can come check us out at, at octaviaproject.org. And there's a bunch of ways that people can help or get involved. Great. Yeah. Well, where can we find you online? Hanaporter.com. Hanaporter.com. Excellent. Yeah. Easy to remember. Um, yeah. The book is The Thick and the Lean. It should be out now, uh, at least in the U.S. And uh, thank you so much, Hannah. Oh, thank you so much, Mara. It was such a great time. And that was our interview with Hannah Porter. It was a delight to talk to her, and I really think you should check out her book. Other books that I'm reading or checking out or have been sent to me, I'm going I'm to start doing this to let you know what books have hit my orbit whether purchased by me or been sent to me. I was sent a copy of Death Watch by Stona Fitch, and I'm reading it right now, and it's kind of a kind of a critique on late-stage capitalism that is told by, uh, so far, the point of view of an ad exec who's been hired to sell a watch that can kill you at any moment. So him trying to figure out how to sell this, whether it's even real or not, so far, pretty intriguing. I'm enjoying it. I, I, it's a. This is where you learn where, where point of view is is so interesting because you could tell the story from someone who bought the watch, or who gave the watch, or was given the watch, or created the watch. But no, it's it's the person in the middle of all that who sees the watch and tries to figure out how to sell it. I think that's an interesting POV, and think that if you're feeling like your story isn't working, but you still love your story, wonder if you're telling it from the wrong person. I'm also reading Marrying In, which is a romance in a mafia family, read in among, among mafia families, uh, by Jennifer Stratton. Enjoying that one so far. It's also got a main character who's has got some severe PTSD, and it it the book discusses that. I don't know if I need to give any content warnings because so far it's only like mentioned her kidnapping or her attempted kidnapping. I'm not sure yet. I'm enjoying it. And I met uh, Victor Manabo. Apologies if I'm not saying that right. Um, we It was late and we both had wine, but um, he was telling me about his new book, The Sleepless, which I just grabbed on Kindle. A grieving journalist investigates his mentor's death 
grappling with the unintended consequences of biohacking that might implicate him in it. Pandemic that stops a quarter of the world from sleeping. Some cool books coming out, or that are out. And I'll talk about more in the next episode. But for now, you can reach me at mightymertgmail.com. You can see this, the show notes and the blog at merverse.com, if anybody reads blogs anymore. And I am on Blue Sky, sometimes Twitter. I try to navigate Mastodon, and I I occasionally post things to TikTok as Evil Mer, bad advice. And all of those, my username is Mighty Mer. But anyway, this podcast is called I Should Be Writing. I do another podcast called Ditch Diggers with the amazing author Matt Wallace. And we talk about the more business side of writing. And we also swear. Even though I am a published novelist, a good deal of my income comes from Patreon, where people like you support me doing podcasts like this. So if you ever want to help me out, that's patreon.com slash mightymer. I'm thinking about a couple of uh, new and exciting rewards. So I'm, I'm going to be figuring that out. So check it out if you feel like it. And I think that's all the promotion. Oh, no, wait, I should actually promote my books. I got to run an actual outro to this thing. Huh. My latest book is Station Eternity. I call it uh, Murder, She Wrote Meets Babylon 5. And that, that came out last October. People seem to like it. And its follow-up, Chaos Terminal, is going to be out this November and is already up for pre-order. And you know the best way to help an author, one of the best ways to help an author is to pre-order. Another way to help an author is to be named Bigolus Dickolus and have apparently all of your 14,000 followers run off and buy your book. Right, buy my book. That's what it is. You would be the influencer, the new new scary book influencer, and I would be the author helped by this. <laughs> but honestly, what that shows is the power of recommendations and words that you use to tell people what you like. So uh, if, and you know, not even my book, let's forget my book. If you're reading anything that you're really into, talk about it. Tell people about it on social media. Take a picture of it. it. Every little bit helps. And, you know, authors need a lot of help. But I will talk to you next week when we'll interview Arlie Sorg. And until then, you should be writing. I Should Be Writing is available to you under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. Theme music by John Anilio. Art by Numbers Ninja. Production by Summer Brooks. And hosting by Libsyn. Find all of this information and more at merverse.com. And remember, we can't do this without you. Thanks for your support. Doctor